Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Geordie Racer. Do you remember that? Educational program? Used to watch it at school. Kid going around Newcastle. Geordie Racer. Geordie Racer. Too obscure? No one know what I'm on about now? Okay, move on. My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast. And today, we bring you something fresh, something new, something different, something additional from Alive and Kicking. We want to give you more, so we are giving you more. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, this week in the 90s. Yes, it's a new kind of mini-series within the series, but something we're going to do try and do every week as long as there's enough to talk about you will be getting a ak 90s alive and kicking show it'll I'll pop up on your device every week no matter what happens that is the plan we want to give you more content some weeks we can't just get a schedule together but if we can just talk about what happened this week in the 90s not as long this isn't going to they ain't going to be as flushed out as the other shows we're doing a commutable listen i like to call it you know, your 40, 45 minutes, looking back at some of the big events that happened this week in the 1990s. It was an idea that came together, really, um, from part, well, all of the, what I like to call the Alive and Kicking Brain Trust, the, the AK90s Club, a few of the regulars, Joel, Matthew, Sid Lambert. Uh, Matthew came up with this idea, and it's something we kind of used to do at the beginning of the show. We used to quickly go through what happened this week in the 90s but not really talk about it and there are strands and stories that we haven't really got to the bottom of or discussed or fleshed out uh, that we can now and we start that on today's show we could start at the beginning of the year but why not let's just start it's february here's a new show for you more content and it doesn't mean don't worry you'll still be getting full shows hopefully at least on a bi-weekly basis so it means some weeks you'll get two doses of 90s football from us which is great um there'll be longer versions with the interview with a, a famous face from the the past as well as and we'll mix up some of the guests as we always do depending on the theme that is the plan going forward so this week on this week in the 90s in our first ever episode we're going to run down three big Subjects that happened this week in the 1990s, starting with Alan Shearer's England debut against France in 1992. Um, a friendly with a lot of little things we can talk about on, so we go through that. Uh, we talk about the big Merseyside 4-4 from 1991, one of the best FA Cup games of the decade, and one of the best FA Cup games of all time, actually. Doesn't get enough credit for me, and I'll talk about that on the show in just a second. That led to the end of Kenny Dalglish's reign at Liverpool as well, so we talk through that and the big shock it was at the time when he resigned from Liverpool. And on that manager theme, we also talk about George Graham and his departure, surrounded by controversy at Arsenal. So, as I said, going forward, these will be shorter shows, but you'll get them every week. Possibly you won't even get an intro because we'll go straight into this week in the 90s with our guests. Probably be regular voices that you'll hear every every Monday. Hopefully, Monday or Tuesday should pop on your device. Another slice of Alive and Kicking. Another slice of 1990s football. Aren't we good to you? Remember, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook at AK90s. And keep your eye on there for a couple of new Themes that are coming on our longer shows that should be coming in the next couple of days as well. We like to get your thoughts and your memories on those certain subjects, so keep your eye on that. Also, if you do love us, and I'm hoping that you do, or if this is the first time you downloaded us and you want to tell us how much you liked it, 
get on iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review because it's very much appreciated. It means we can do more shows like this and going forward we can do even more. We've got big plans for AK90s and this is just a small first step in the empire that is. We want to be the go-to 90s football. That's what we're going to do. If you want to, if, when people think about 90s football, they should think about Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast, and more to come from that brand. So sit back and enjoy the first ever this week in the 1990s. This is Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast, and you're listening to This Week in the 90s. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, and this is new. This is brand spanking new, um, about the old, but still new. This is this week in the 90s from Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Um, I've done a quick intro on this one, but you won't get them going forward because I don't think you can hear that. want to hear that much of my voice, and I'll go straight into my friends and my colleagues and my guests and my regulars who are introduced right now. Uh, firstly, uh, he's the man that inspired this new kind of mini-series in between our normal episodes. He's a writer for The Sportsman and Football Whispers, a couple of them which will go up this week, which we'll be discussing anyway. One of them went up this morning on a subject we'll be going later on, Alan Shearer's England debut. But welcome, as per usual, no pair side I imagine, and it's because we're recording this not late at night, so it's not your favorite of choice tonight, I imagine. Uh, Matthew Christ. Hello, how are you doing? Are you, does this mean you're going to blame me if this uh, concept goes oh, horribly wrong? Totally, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I've completely passed the buck instantly there. No, of course, what would go wrong about talking? It's good, it gives us a bit of tangents to go on, so I'm sure yeah. the listeners will love it. Absolutely. And can, I just, can I just say to begin with, I apologise if I sound a bit like Barry White today um I've, got, I've had a heavy cold and that was backed up with a weekend in glasgow so i've got a bit of a, a husky throat so uh, apologies a bit like, a bit like danny advance. bear there's there's someone from well, that, yeah. i think it sounds sexy to be honest <laughs> i'm glad well, you think so that third voice is the unmistakable tones of my friend and yours social media mogul for many things including the voice as on itv at the moment uh, borough fan janino fan club head leader um feeling healthy this week joe I'm feeling all right. I'm good. I'm good. I've just been very busy. Um, oh, it's, it's it's the end of the blind auditions Ooh. and the start and the start of the battles. So yeah. uh, it's, so it's not really the voice anymore now, is it? I always this is what my failed concept with this show sometimes is. It's not the voice anymore because they can see them. Yeah, but they've, they've initially judged them okay. on the voice. I, I just want to see how defensive you're going to get. So I like that. You're <laughs> you're fully on in it, no. aren't you? <laughs> you know how to get me every time you know, <laughs> I, no it's a good chat mate, mate if you look at some of the television programs I've worked on and some of the ones that I've stood for you know <laughs> you know, it, it's unbelievable how I've done that over the years so the voice is, is right up there for me no it's doing very very well um, and you're feeling healthy because Matt's mentioned he's got a, a hoarse voice uh, from a cold I had horrible food poisoning last week from a dodgy burger I'm going to name and shame Charles and a flick I went to a game last Tuesday night against Bradford that burger van gave me food poisoning. I was out for almost a week. Damn you, Charlton on the flag. There's a lesson. Don't go and watch a team you don't really support just to see your best mate. Just don't do it. You get a dodgy burger and you feel shit for two days. <laughs> That's my rant over. Let's talk about this week in the 1990s. This is something I actually used to do at the beginning of the podcast anyway um, and just haven't done it for a while. Oh, now he's trying to grab it for himself. Yeah, no, you. I'm going to, yeah. yeah. So I'm just, just going to kind of, yeah, I'll, I'll, heart battle, I'll drop that down. But yeah, we didn't go into detail. I think Matthew was right. Going into detail gives us opportunity to talk about things 
we haven't really covered because there's still lots we haven't covered on this show as well. Um, so let's just start with um, today because it's the 19th of February as we record this. Um, an article went up today of, by Matthew on the this subject that we're going to talk about. I literally just tweeted about it as well. It's February 1992, the 19th. We're at Wembley, friendly between England and France. It's a 2-0 win. Um, Matthew, you've written this article, so set the scene for us on this. What was so standout for this uh, innocuous friendly? Well, I was going to say the Jeff Thomas chip, but I suppose yeah, we we'll better get to talk. That. Yeah, we'll we get better... to that. <laughs> we better talk about Alan Shearer. Um, yeah, I suppose it wouldn't. It would have been a, a, a pretty uh, uninteresting game. It probably was an uninteresting game if it hadn't been for uh, Alan Shearer making his, his debut on this night, uh, his first appearance for England. But I think what's what's interesting when you look at the side that was out that night, it was a real mix of the of the old and the new, wasn't it? It was a, a crossover from the sort of last of the. World Cup 90 team. I mean, they still had the same kit, unbelievably. I mean, if now kits change every year, but to see them still wearing that 90, Italian 90 kit is, is incredible. But you obviously had players like uh, Lineker, who was a veteran, I suppose you could say. Mark Wright was in the team who played in the, the Italy 90. But then you had the new with uh, Shearer and David Hurst was his David strike partner that, that day up front. So <laughs> And Rob Jones as well, who we always tend to mention on on this show so it was a real obviously it was a friendly uh, looking forward to the uh, European Championships later that year so an experimental lineup I suppose you could say but I don't think there's anything experimental about um, picking Alan Shearer because he went on to become one of the not the greatest goal scorers for England necessarily uh, but certainly in the game in the, in the Premier League um, so that that's what it was it was a bit of a mishmash really this team um, as a lot of players fell by the wayside after the 1990 World Cup and then looked forward to what was ultimately a pretty dreadful uh, European Championships. Mm. Yeah, let's, I'll quickly go through that team. So Chris Woods in goal, Rob Jones, who, who was also making his debut that night as well, which obviously um, he did, his career was terrible by injury, but could have really challenged Gary Neville if things hadn't gone so bad for him. Uh, Stuart Pearce, Mark Wright, as you mentioned, Martin Keown, kind of never really a regular for England, but was in the squad that far back as well. It was. It was Keon's debut as well. Keon, it was, yes. Keon's debut as well. Yeah, you're right, Joel. Yeah, so Des Walker as well was in there. You'll never beat him. Nigel Clough, Jeff Thomas, who, yeah, we'll talk about in a second. Neil Webb, who was around in 1990 and before that as well at the at the 88 Euros. And then David Hurst and Shearer up front, which was... Uh, an interesting partnership because obviously their England careers went in very different avenues after that. Um, for me, this is weird for me because this is actually the first ever football game I attended. Um, I was, so what, 1992, I'd have been uh, eight years old. Yeah, that'd been right, yeah. So, and I went to Wembley for the first time. So before I'd even seen a QPR game, there was the first game I went to. I don't really remember why, but I think my dad just got tickets. Um, but I remember going to this and seeing the, the lights, the Wembley, as it was there, the Twin Towers, uh, being overawed by it all and uh, being excited because it was Alan Shearer's debut. I always like, I also, and we mentioned the old and the new, that was evident in Shearer and Lineker, wasn't it? I was really excited that, you know, Lineker and Shearer were going to play at front together. Obviously, they did in the second half when, when Lineker came on for David Hurst. So, yeah, for me, it's quite a, uh, it's a personal game because it was my first ever football game. And Joe, I mean, what, what do you remember from this, um, this landmark game for Alan Shearer? Uh, just the fact that he played, <laughs> really. <laughs> was it one of the only times that Lineker and Shearer played together? How often did that happen? Do I, we know? I think it's twice. I think it's this game, and I think they played together. They definitely played together at Euro '92, but I can't remember if that was for one. I, I think or two it was. The, yeah, there was one one group game where Shearer yeah. played in in the, um, the the three that England played that that summer. So I assume it was either the France one or the 
I'm pretty sure it wasn't. It wasn't the Sweden one, was it? Cause no, I think it was the Denmark game. Came on. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I could be. It's, I'll it's, double check, but yeah. yeah. So it's one of the first two. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah, only twice, which is yeah for those two generations across. I mean, they sit in the studio to, together every weekend now, don't they? Which is kind of ironic, but yeah, that was the only time they kind of played together. They both scored as well, and and Trevor Booking says in his commentary to on Alan Shearer's first goal, it's like Gary uh, Gary Lineker action replay. So the comparison was there. Um, so yeah, Shearer's debut. I mean. At that time, I mean, we see debuts given out quite willy nilly now, don't we, for England, Joel? But I think that everyone was expecting that one. He'd been so he'd done so well for Southampton at the time, hadn't he? He was the next golden boy. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, even you say there's, there's three debuts in this side, but the caps weren't sort of dished no. out, and there wasn't as many friendlies then as there is now. And an England game still had a, a feeling of an event then, especially you know France weren't the force that they would go on to be later in the nineties, obviously, but it's still. You know, it's still a good feeling as an England fan to go out and, and beat them quite easily. And especially when you consider, I think, was um, Michel Platini in charge of France then? Was he their manager? Yeah, I think he was. He yeah, was. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you look at that so, I mean, team you, as well. Look at the names. If you look at their team, yeah. I mean, Basil Borley, Laurent Blanc, Didier Deschamps, uh, Luis Fernandes. I don't think it's that one. No. <laughs> <clears throat> Jean-Pierre Papin and, and a lad called um, Eric... Cantona? Yeah, never. I don't know if that's don't, how you pronounce yeah, it. I don't know what happened to him. He's one of those. Uh, yeah, apparently, according to this thing I'm looking at now, he played for Leeds United Association Football Club. Oh, are they the ones with that weird badge where he's patting his nipple? Is that is that Leeds United? Yes. Yeah, yeah that would be yes. the one. Uh, is Eric, Eric Cantona clearly went on to be the uh, the David Hurst of France football then, clearly, because nothing really happened to him after that. But yeah, no. I'm sure we'll hear of him in the future. But <laughs> Jean-Pierre Papin, the most French-sounding man of all time as well, who was an absolutely phenomenal striker but you're right Joel this French team was on the cusp wasn't it it was before they I don't think they'd won at Wembley or even scored I think John mentioned John Watson mentioned that in some of the commentary I've seen that they hadn't even scored at Wembley until that point so they weren't the France that we would have known them to become later in the decade especially obviously around 98 when they won the World Cup and we mentioned Jeff Thomas earlier there Matthew um describe that um opportunity I mean it's not Ronnie Rosenthal miss but he has been labeled with it as it for the rest of his career hasn't he He's, he's been labelled with it and it's always brought up. But the, the more, when you watch it back, it isn't actually as bad as no, I it's think not. people make it. People, if you, you know, over, over the years, people have said, oh, it went so wide, it went, it went out for a throw-in or it nearly hit the corner flag. It didn't actually. He just didn't. He, he obviously went for a chip. The keeper was advancing out, went for a chip and, and obviously just duffed it, basically. But it, it didn't, it didn't blaze it as wide as... Uh, I think people would have you believe if uh, if you listen to people like us that talk about it every few weeks on the podcast. But um, no, he just just mistimed his is uh, is chip. It's a shame because he's I liked Jeff Thomas. I liked him as a midfielder. Obviously, didn't probably didn't go on to do anything substantial with England. But um, it's a shame that that's what he's uh, what he's remembered for. It is a shame. I tweeted even, this morning, so sorry, Jeff. But <laughs> <laughs> well, he's gone on to do all these great things. He's done the, all the bike rides and raised millions of pounds for charity, and people still remember him for that that failed chip. Hey, so, some some don't get to play for England. Things, on such things, life is built. Yeah, yes. some guys don't get to play for England, but you know, if you're going to do it, I suppose make it memorable. I mean, to go quickly going back to Alan Shearer, he's. I didn't realise this until I was looking to the game a bit more. 
his under twenty one record at that point was thirteen goals in eleven games. So you can't yeah. really there, there was just no way he wasn't getting into that England squad. And I, it, it's yeah. probably a surprise that it took him a little bit of time to actually establish himself as this because it was really not until Euro ninety six that he became the man. He kind of had injuries, didn't he? And never quite you know England had that poor qualifying campaign up to the ninety four World Cup, which they didn't get to. So yeah, it's kind of surprised at that. But yeah, so on, that was nineteenth of February nineteen ninety two. Check it out on just Twitter. before we go. Before we go, go there's some incredible. Uh, middle names of the England team. Oh, that's, that's time for middle names. De- Go on, Joel. Desmond, Desmond Sinclair Walker. Oh. Des Walker. Of course. Obviously. David Eric Hurst, which is ironic considering who he was played up against. Gary Winston Lineker. Now, I should have known that Lineker's middle name was Winston, and I didn't. So that's quite a patriotic name for who that's would be the patriotic. second top yeah. goal scorer for, uh, maybe he was named after John Lennon, who knows. And, uh, Nigel Howard Clough, which is interesting because Brian Brian Clough's middle name is also Howard. Oh, so there you go. There's my uh, family. Yeah, well, I just I only know that because of that little scene in the Damned United where uh, Martin Sheen, it, Martin, what's he called? Not Martin Sheen, Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen. As yeah, uh, yeah as his, mid, his middle name is Martin. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> he goes uh, Brian Howard Clough. Like that walks off. So that's how I that's always ingrained in my head. So there you go. There's a nice bit of symmetry for you. Let's right. move on, eh? I love a bit of symmetry. Uh, talking to Dan United, mm. that gives me an opportunity to say my favourite line from it. How do you stop keeping our oh, stop stand balls? There you go. That's my favourite <laughs> that's my favourite line from Dan United, because at the time that was very, very true. Uh we're gonna go slightly back in time but ahead in days, which for that that slightly makes sense. Um nineteen ninety one. Uh, for me, this game is always one of those games that I think about when people talk about games of the decade and big FA Cup matches, but doesn't probably get as much credit or cover as it should. Hasn't even got its own Wikipedia page, which some games should uh, do have, and I think this one should. 20th of February, 1991, um, the fourth meeting of that, of that season uh, between Liverpool and Everton. Uh, they drew 4-4 at Goodison Park. Absolute end-to-end stuff one of the greatest games are, I think especially that early part of the 90s in the FA Cup uh, again Matthew you ri- you're going to be writing about this this week um, tell us about the game I mean it was a cup replay FA Cup um, end-to-end stuff Beardsley Sharp some great goals fill us in yeah well just to set the scene I suppose the first game had been played at Anfield uh, three days before this was in the days when if a game went to a replay they pretty much played it straight away the following week um, pretty nondescript game, really, the first game, a nil-nil. Um, some Evertonians would tell you they should have had a penalty, which if they hadn't scored, then we wouldn't be talking about the replay all these years later. But um, I think after that, anyone that watched that first game would, would tell you they didn't expect what happened in the replay um, because it was just a, a phenomenal game. I think at the time, it showed the game also showed and highlighted a lot of the weaknesses that were in that Liverpool team at the time. It showed their brilliance and their vulnerability, really, in the same in the same game, because some of the, the two two Liverpool goals particularly were fantastic. It's one from Beardsley and, and, a, and the fourth one from Barnes. But their defending that night was absolutely horrendous. And uh, Everton just wouldn't lie down. Every time, obviously, Liverpool took the lead on four occasions and um, Everton pegged them back on four occasions after after extra time. So, fair play to Everton. They just, uh, they just would not lie down. But they were ably assisted by some pretty miserable... Uh, Liverpool defending. I think there's one one goal where Steve Nichol gets in a mix-up with Grobelar and the ball falls to, was it Cotty, I think? And uh, there's one where Glenn Hussein lets the ball through his legs and then it falls to an Everton striker. So, calamitous uh, defending for a few of the goals, but not wanting to take anything away from uh, from from a 
an Everton team that weren't having the best of seasons. Really, Liverpool were three points clear at the top of the first division back then, and uh, looking like they were on course to win another title, um, retain the title as it would have been there. But um, I think this game was a huge turning point, as we'll talk about later on. But it just it just seemed to it was a watershed moment, I think, for that Liverpool team. And you could see that when you watched the the highlights back. It was uh, it was uh, there were some key stop key, uh, keystone cop moments. Quite often in that game. Yeah, Steve Nichol was the one that, that won. I think it's Graham Sharp's second goal. I don't know what yeah. what the hell he's doing for that one, but I think you're right. It's, it became the sort of the tie, didn't it, for this Liverpool team? I mean, but for a neutral, for like all of us and, and Joe, I was going to come to you. I mean, what a game to watch and, and some great goals. As Matthew mentioned, that John Barnes goal. It's one I always remember. That curler into the top corner was just fantastic. Yeah, wasn't it? Um, I mean, just mentioning the the defence there. I mean, the back line for Liverpool was. Robillard, David Burrows, Steve Nichols, Steve Staunton, Gary Ablett. So it's not the strongest backline that Liverpool Football Club ever had, I would say, on oh, Barry Venison as well. So, you know, that's not, um, you know, you, you, you could have almost guessed that there was going to be a lot of goals. But that's what we like. I think going back to what you said about uh, it doesn't get remembered and it's because it's pre-Premier League era, isn't it? And football didn't exist then. Not before 1992, so right? <laughs> so you know we that's why it's probably not remembered as well as it should be uh, but yeah certainly pulsating game but it's that thing you know Liverpool go ahead four times to get pulled back four times and, yeah. and the other one right at the end with Cotty um, that, who, that was um, unheard of unheard of at the time for Liverpool to do that wasn't it I mean you think back at this time in, in hindsight now we know it was sort of the end of the Liverpool domination but at the time for Liverpool to give up a lead four times in one game was just absolutely mm. unheard of. And uh, obviously a lot of questions were asked at the time. And, and I think people look back now and think that there was definitely a turning point at the club. Like you say, there was a lot of, it was a team in transition. There were a lot of defensive uh, players playing that night. And uh, for one reason or another, it it all came to a head that night. I mean, and the pop- I don't, sorry, sorry go on. well, I just think a lot of people think that Liverpool never really recovered from that night and that season really and then you went into the, the, the subsequent years the early years of the Premier League when Liverpool sort of fell by the wayside and were the shadow of their former self which the, the Torben you Pugnik could... years as I like to call them yeah yeah so Joe what I were mean, you going to that front that, that front three of Barnes, Beasley and Rush mm. you probably wouldn't have swapped them for certainly anybody in England who was playing in England no. at that time obviously yeah Shearer but you know, aside from that, the way the three of them linked up, just wonderful, wonderful players. But then it, it's such an it's it looks such an unbalanced side to my uneducated eye. It was, and I think they, I think Liverpool played six defensive players that yeah, night because Glenn Hussein like, played as well, didn't he? Yeah, Glenn mm. Hussein. Uh, you know, so you got like you got probably six defenders playing in the, in that team. So you probably two in midfield and then and a back four, which. Again, it wasn't really heard of at the time. I mean, Liverpool were obviously known for being defensive. They weren't as gung-ho as I think people like to think they were throughout a lot of the um, 80s, late 80s. They were quite, they quite often win games 1-0, 2-0 and then close up shot. But they weren't, they didn't make a habit of playing six uh, six defenders in a team. So, yeah. And even six defenders in the team and they still left in four goals. So something and then Gal yeah, and yeah, yeah. There's no obviously. There's no Steve McMahon there, and Hanson. I think is he retired by that point, or was he still? At I time? think he, he was injured. I think he, he was injured. Yeah. So yeah, well, maybe I wouldn't say depleted because looking at that team, it is great. But yeah, very defensive. But surprising, 
given you know the display by some of them, some of the goals and you know Graham Sharp, obviously a great Everton striker who got two on the night. Beardsley got two as well. I think that was his first goal since December. And then as we mentioned, uh, Rush and then Cotty and then John Barnes in that final final that great great goal in the that was the hundred and seventy second Merseyside derby, which I read, which is. Rather a little fact for you there. Then Everton, they won the replay. Was it 1-0, I believe, on the won, seven days nil, later? Yeah. 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 The interesting thing about this game is, and I think we've gone to discuss the reasons why, in the 180 minutes of the game, uh, not 180, 120 minutes, Liverpool didn't make one substitution all night in that whole epic game that that was. Hard, hard to believe now, isn't it? You think the way football is now, you'd have had it. Well, they had, they had Ray Houghton and David Speedy on, on the bench, not known for the defensive qualities. So maybe that's why. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just weird to see two subs as well it's so alien isn't it now to in, in this in this yeah. 2018 looking at all the great names on these two teams I don't know if you guys have looked at the two um, two lineups from the night I mean John Ebro isn't one that probably you know great <laughs> fair you know solid player but not one there's a name in here that could definitely go into the, the players at time forgot category that we'll need to bring that feature back at some point um, someone I actually had to google and then I was kind of Raymond Atterveld do we remember members at Raymond Atterveld I do, Everton. yeah. I remember the name, yeah. I couldn't tell you much. No. Uh, but he, was he Dutch or he Belgium? Was, yeah, no, Dutch. he was Dutch. Yeah, yeah Dutch. he was Dutch, yeah. Yeah, yeah I do remember the name, but, but that's obviously I've got a lot of Evertonian mates, so I probably he comes up in conversation now and again. But um, yeah, a real name of that early early 90s Everton, Everton side, which there were some obscure names in that team really weren't there I mean it wasn't it wasn't a, you had some household names like Sharp that we mentioned but uh, and, and Neville Southall but then you did have a, a couple of uh, a couple of random ones in there yeah he played for West Ham on loan as well and Bristol City before going back to Holland so yeah I mean we were a little bit lambasted on Twitter for not knowing en- Enzo Chiesa last week well, no not, I was well, just about to say that we got hammered <laughs> well, well we, we, do, we knew who he was we yeah, were just exactly. saying how he, he, he was a bit of a out of the blue signing I think that's where we, we were missed Misconstrued, mis, mis, yeah. Mi, yeah, misquoted. Yes. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, complete. We knew we knew of him. We didn't realise the impact, and he was on that, that level of transfer at the time. So, apologies to everyone. We we do know who he is. We're not that sort of podcast. But and I remember this name. It was just one name that kind of went. Oh, I forgot about him, and I, I googled him, and I remembered the Everton Atterveld player. Um, this is obviously leading to the the second sort of part of what happened this week. Um, off off the back of this game, and as you say, which was kind of the turning point in Liverpool and what happened to them. Well, they haven't won the league since, and what happened to them in that decade as well. Um, the man on the sidelines didn't look particularly happy that night. Uh, Liverpool manager Kenny Dalglish. Um, again, this is something you'll read from Matthew's wise hand later on. That sounded wrong in <laughs> in the week. But <laughs> Kenny Dalglish, you know, literally days after this game, Liverpool, you know, they were. T- Still clear at the top of the uh, uh, first division. I was going to say Premier League first division at the time, but he packed it in. Much shock around Merseyside. The end of the Douglas era. Matthew, fill us in again. Yeah, it was a, a huge shock. I don't think you can um, for anyone that remembers it at the time, which I do. I don't think you can. It's hard to explain what it was like back then because, again, obviously you didn't have Sky Sports News or, or anything like that. So it really was a case of people saying, "Have you heard? Have you heard? Heard what the news? Oh, Douglas has, has quit." No, no. Um, a huge story, so so big actually that if you look at the front page of it, is it the either, either the Echo or the Post in Liverpool? That evening's edition, it's a big headline that says Kenny quits, big big letters and exclamation mark. And then about halfway down page one, there's one paragraph talking about the uh, ground troops going into Iraq in the Gulf War, wow. Second Gulf War. Um, and you think so? You've potentially got World War Three breaking out there, which the story's been shoved right down to the bottom of the page by the. Uh, 
news that Dalglish has has quit Liverpool. That's how how huge it was and how unexpected. I don't think anybody, even people in the club, uh, saw it coming. To be honest, for various reasons. With hindsight, you can look back and, like you say, during that game, he looked like a he just looked like a lost soul. He, he, his hands are in his pockets. He was leaning on the uh, dugout. He just looked like a a, man, a lost a lost puppy, I suppose. And uh, obviously, in hindsight, I think we all know there were reasons why. Um, probably at the time, not not well documented at all. But um, looking back from what we know now and, and the, the position he was in, I think I think it's fair to say he could well have been on the brink of some kind of nervous breakdown from um, going back to his. The role that he played in in Hillsborough mm. um, at, at Hillsborough after the after the tragedy as well stuff that's not that wasn't that well documented at the time but you know now you know he, him and his wife Marina pretty much opened up their lives to the families and the people that were affected in the days and weeks and months I mean Douglas tried to attend as many funerals as he could two three a day at times and his wife would quite, quite often just go into the players lounge at Anfield and just let people come up and sit and chat to it I mean, they were basically grief counsellors for 96 families so god knows how many hundreds of people so um wasn't really a thing then to, to be discussed it was almost as though now people would obviously say well look he's obviously in need of some kind of help or counselling or um, assistance but it it just was almost a, a case of man up back then really and uh, I just don't think it was people realised how much of a toll it took on him and I don't think he's really ever said that's the reason why he uh, he did leave but I think he was under a lot of pressure there was talk of him having a few fallouts with the, the board and a, a few high profile bust ups with players but I don't think that's ever really been proved or confirmed I just think he there was a quote I should know it because I've got it in the article that's going this week but he said something like I was watching that game I knew I needed to make a decision I knew what would happen if I didn't make a change but I just couldn't bring myself to make the change I just didn't know what to do so basically so, and then at the end he said I just knew I had to get out I needed a break so really there sort of saying that he was just stretched to the limit for one reason or another and uh, I mean I don't think, don't think you can blame it really from, from what we know of that time now I don't think I mean this is amateur Psych, you know, psychology, but you know, you wouldn't be surprised if he was suffering from uh, some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder no. or something like that. Because Absolutely not only not, had no. he dealt with he dealt with Hillsborough as Liverpool manager, but he'd also dealt with Heysel. Yes, and so there's did, two yeah. enormously stressful things that you nobody should be able to deal with, and yet he was there, sort of offering his support for everybody that needed it. I mean, it shows how little these sort of things were thought of at the time. That the, the Liverpool players at the time thought that he'd left because he couldn't fix the defence. Yeah, yeah, and that's I mean, that's just looking, why. Yeah. That, that's, it, that's actually what they thought. Nobody even thought, oh, well, maybe he's stressed because of. And we'd look at it in a totally different way now. You dare say it, that if, if something like that was ever to happen, happen again, and you know, the, the, hopefully it never will because of what's happened since then. But you'd like to think that a club would say, well, manager, right, you get out garden and leave just for a bit we'll get somebody else yeah. in you know you think that people would be looked after them all but then it was just roll up your sleeves and, and get on with it and the fact that the players thought oh he doesn't know how to fix the defence yeah. just shows how little understanding there was of any traumas like that I think yeah and, and the fact that it was such a shock like you say you know if it happened now people would say well of course he mm. was in a, he was in a, in, a, in a bad way of course he was because it wasn't just Hillsborough happened people died it, it over I mean I live in the city. I've done for years, and even now, you know, not a week goes by without you don't bump into somebody or chat to somebody in a shop or in a pub or whatever that was affected or still is affected, mm. or they have they've lost somebody, and you know, so 
God knows what it was like for those two years afterwards with with Dalglish, for him to he basically opened his life up to people and um, his heart. I don't think it was appreciated because he was such a sort of dry, quiet, dour sort of figure that I think a lot of people just didn't think of him as that sort of huggy, huggy type type guy. But from by all accounts, he was absolutely tremendous. I mean, to this day, people still say that he what he did for the people in the city was uh, tremendous. It's quite well captured in the um, Kenny. Uh, yeah. film that was out great film um, yeah. you know and that, that really like Joel says it goes from start to finish because he don't forget his first season manager Liverpool was the first season after high school so he was thrown in at the deep end with that and then right up until uh, what happened a, a few years later so yeah it's just funny to see how people didn't think it was it was obvious at the time looking back now you think well of course um, and, it's, and it's quite pathetic really just to say oh it must have been because of that four all draw with Everton I mean it wasn't was it it was uh, it was a lot more to it than that. It was a lot more. I, I, the, the shock value of it, I was trying to compare a sort of a modern day comparison, but there really isn't. It was such a massive shock, and even for someone like me who was quite young at the time, because they were top of the league and because we weren't privy to these sort of circumstances that were going through, the, the problems and the effect they had of him from, from Hazel and Hillsborough. Could you guys, is there anything that, of shock value of someone leaving or a transfer that, that, that kind of on this scale? Because it's hard to describe how big of a surprise it really was. I don't think yeah. that big. I remember Cole going to Manchester United yeah. seemed like a massive deal yeah. when when that went through. But I don't can't ever think of anything sort of on measured that much on the Richter scale. No. And there was no absolutely no sort of uh, pressure or anything. I mean, now you know, if, if Klopp loses a couple of games, there's yeah. pressure on him. If if uh, um, Mourinho loses a game or two, there's a war. You know, he's under pressure. But then there was just no talk of it. As far as we all knew, Liverpool were on their way to winning an, another league because that's just what they did ultimately they didn't but it, it was just there was not even any talk of it so it really was a, a case of no wonder it, people would you know, no wonder it, it knocked the uh, Iraq war off the off the headlines because it was that much of a shock well yeah I don't think I think Ke- like Keegan when he quit Newcastle that I mean he was under stressful as he said he was you know he couldn't take the stress anymore but even then I still don't think it was as big a shock it was still surprising because of obviously what he was doing at the club but they were on the beginning of a slump well not top of the league three points clear despite what we're saying the, the tide was turning so yeah massive massive shot but as we've discussed already, you can see why. Uh, let's move on and talking of managers as well. There's another manager uh, this week in the 90s who left the club under very, very different circumstances as well. The 21st of February 1995. Uh, we did discuss this way, way back in our uh, sort of a, a podcast where we use the word allegedly a lot. Uh, we talked about scandals of the 90s. Um, George Graham uh, was removed from his position at Arsenal uh, due to financial irregularity. Uh, there's not even for me to say. He would. He took bungs, basically. Fin- financial irregularity. There, thank you. Yeah, you know, food poisoning has even knocked my speech out as well. Oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, after he had uh, allegedly accepted an illegal £425,000 payment for no- from Norwegian agent Rennie Hager following the sales and acquisitions of John Jensen and that famous name from the 90s, Paul Lydenson as well. Um, again, this, again, not in the shock value of Kenny Dalglish, a surprising turn of events at that point because we weren't really in the complete understanding of agents and the way they were paid and how they were doing. We all, you know, there was all kind of rumourings of how it was done and brown envelopes, blah, blah, blah. But this was the first public airing of such eager, I can't say it, I'm not even going to try, of such bad things. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> so stick with bungs. Yeah, bungs. I'm going to say yeah. that. I'm gonna do that. Yeah, it's one of those. It's Monday morning, everyone. So uh, what do we remember about this? I mean, again, big shock because George Graham's such a successful Arsenal manager. Kind of shocking for them. Kind of an end of an era and really ended in the, the worst way possible for, for George. Coming to you first, Joe. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was another one of them that obviously, looking back at it now, Arsenal were a complete mess. I mean, although they were winning things and, and doing well, but you had the business with Merson. You'd had the business, you know, Merson and his cocaine, alcohol, gambling. Tony Adams had gone to jail for drink driving. So, you know, there was just a real sort of strange culture at the club. And it turned out that George Graham as well was um, taking backhanders left, right and centre. And um, it just, it, and another one that was a shock, but kind of not that much of a shock when you turn around and go, you turn around and go, oh yeah, they're all at it. You know, <laughs> you know, one of them where you just, yeah, I've thought this for years that everybody's on the take. And, and obviously, you know, the game isn't like that. And, you know, it, it can't be like that now because of the immense pressure on it. But at the time it was, it was just a, a, such a peculiar thing and, and sort of everything you always thought you knew about football suddenly came to pass. I didn't... The funny thing... Go on, go on, Matthew. The funny, th- the funny thing is, I hope it... Was, first things first, was it ever proven? I mean, was this why he was sacked? Was it proven or was it? Is it still allegedly? I think it's still... I think we still have to use the word allegedly. I don't think Arsenal okay. ever came out and said this is the reason, but I think okay. it was read between but the I, lines. The comical thing about it is, you know, was it worth it? 400 grand for two of the probably worst performing Arsenal players <laughs> in the history. And he's he's lost his job. Well, I suppose it was worth it for him because he pocketed, uh, may have pocketed £400,000 from it. But you could understand if it was Alan Shearer or somebody, but John Jensen and I can't even remember, pa- Paul Anderson, Anderson, was it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what a... I hope he did something good with the money, if he took it, that is. <laughs> Allegedly, yeah. yeah. But it's sort of then, you know, other people were implicated. Brian Clough, who we've already already mentioned, there was stuff come out about him, and it was and obviously stuff with Venables rolled on, which which had always been surrounding him. And it's just, you know, I'm I'm glad we people complain about agents and everything now, but everything is out and above board, and you find out, you know, how much your club has paid to agents, how much has gone to players, etc., etc., etc. And it's much better for that, so there isn't all this shadiness going on and you can trust that if it's a manager or if it's a, if it's a director of recruitment or something like that are going to go and try to get who they think is the best for your club and not you know whether that's correct or not is another thing but but they're always going to try they're going into things with the best intentions as opposed to doing things just because a few quid are getting bung their way I, I, it's really bizarre and then of course it went no, go on. I, was, I was going to say that, but we're going back to an era here where I'm assuming this kind of thing was rife. I'm assuming. I'm not well, accusing yeah, anybody. But, we'd, we'd um, so, yeah. but it's a bit like tapping up, isn't it? Like Fergie always says, you know, everyone does it. It's just, you know, you've got to be smart and not get caught. And I'm, I'm just thinking if if this happened, which it may have or may not have done, but, you know, how many other people, managers at that time, must have been doing something similar, I imagine, he became, oh, yeah. yeah, he became the you know the, the mule, didn't he? He became the, the the rule that we all go by now. So it's it's just the, the one that got caught in the end, and it's unfortunate yeah. for George Graham. It obviously changed the way that financials were dealt with and agents and stuff. So there always have to be a sacrificial lamb in, in these situations, and it's unfortunate George Graham allegedly got caught. With, with by doing this and it was the end of an era for Arsenal uh, Bruce Rioch then came in which was uh, an unusual period for Arsenal and then Arsene Wenger obviously and the rest as we know is history Bruce Rioch did sign Dennis Bergkamp he did for them, though. he did yeah did one people thing think right. that's a, people tend to think that he's a Wenger signing and uh, I think he made his horn debut against Middlesbrough 
uh, Bergkamp, I think, in a one-all draw start of the season. We took the lead. Nick Barmby scored for us. He did score for like six or seven games, I remember, Riley. It was Southampton at home, if I if he scored. And I remember, there's that famous, is it Stuart Pearce's famous quote? Or is it Ray Parler? No, I think it's Stuart Pearce who lambasts the signing and says he'll never he'll never be a success, blah, blah, blah. And obviously he was. Yeah, he, he was looked upon as a bit of a flop, wasn't he? Yeah. I remember fans giving yeah. him a bit of stick. It was almost like, like uh, you've know, signed this sort of washed up has been from the continent. You know, in the year, and in fairness, that, that that was in the era where you still did get a lot of washed-up has-beens coming over. It's not like now where, you know, Premier the Premier League is everything. You did get a lot of journeymen that came over. Not that I'm saying that he was one, but but he was. It, it's. I think we still saw Italy as the main league. Oh and, yeah, yeah. You know, and anybody who left Italy to come to England was obviously winding down a bit. You know, and I think I don't know who else went there in the nineties, but definitely Ince and you know there wasn't that many English players though that went over to Italy. Certainly by the mid to late part of the decade, maybe was it, the beginning there was yeah, a few. It was only Platt, wasn't it? Really made the big success out there, and that was to a yeah. certain extent at a certain level, really. So yeah, there were no Enzo Chiesa. That's what I say. What a fantastic player he was in the nineties. Who, who's that? <laughs> never heard of him. No, yeah, exactly. Been watching his best ofs. I have. Yeah, now, he's now my favourite player. Crimson figure, poster, sticker. I've got it all now. Wonderful. Um, well, before we finish, um, the couple of little nibs that happened this week as well. I just put one on Twitter myself, and uh, Matthew, you'll remember this one. It's from 1997, a match at Highbury between Manchester United and Arsenal. Uh, it was a 2-1 win, but it was kind of the headline act was Ian Wright, Peter Schmeichel, that challenge, that confrontation. It began, you know, it was one of those little sprinkles of the Man United-Arsenal rivalry that we yeah. know, that kind of began, you know, in the mid-90s and then went on to in the decade. But I, I, I gather you remember that one well. I do, yeah. I mean, you've got to go, but talking about that rivalry, it's strange because it goes back really, if you want to be technical about this and me being a bit geeky, United and Arsenal had had history going back to the late 80s. Mm. You know, you're going to warn me for keeping it 90s here, but um, Brian McClare missed a penalty in the last minute of, of a cut replay in 88 and Nigel Winterburn came over and gave him grief and McClare gave it back. And then there was the bust up at Old Trafford in October 1990, the 21-man brawl. So there was always that simmering... Simmering was underneath. that the points deduction? Yeah, yeah was, Arsenal yeah. got two yeah. points deducted. United got one deducted, which is hard to... I mean, imagine the, the riot that would happen now if clubs got deducted <laughs> points. Yeah. Um, and Arsenal still won the league, in fairness to them. But, um, but uh, their famous, They're singing their famous chant about yeah. where the FA could stick their two points. Mm. But uh, So there was always this... But then we were kind of going, going into a new era of this uh, rivalry, weren't we? Mid-80s, you had the when Wenger came along and, and him and Fergie had their spats. But what I would say is fair play to him, not, not fair play to him for the challenge, because it, it was a disgraceful tackle. I mean, Schmeichel nearly spun round, he, he kicked him that hard. But what was funny is at the end of it, when Wright was trying to get at Peter Schmeichel, because I can only see there being one winner in that. Yeah, he's a big lad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, But apparently there was, Wright accused Schmeichel of saying something, didn't he? And but what have you. But it was a pretty bad, uh, pretty bad tackle. Yeah. to say the least oh. so yeah but that's that's all I remember of that game really I do I do remember I, watching it but I didn't even remember the result to be honest it was one of those I remember obviously that happened and then I had to google what happened in the game I thought Arsenal won I didn't even I'd actually forgotten that Maynard actually won the game as well I was on the way back from a school trip to France and Euro Disney and we were on a boat that was doing it was like the perfect storm it was absolutely doing things going <laughs> left to right and there was rain there was wind 
people were crying. My teacher was laying on the floor, Miss Sibai, because she thought she was going to die. It was quite <laughs> horrific, to be honest. It was one of those, I could still see it in my mind. It was quite horrific to, for an 11-year-old. It was a mid... It was a midweek game, wasn't it? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. 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 They, they quite often played each other in mid in uh, midweek games at Highbury in those days, didn't they? They always seem to have a, a bit of a thriller under the lights. I actually wasn't at that game. I will tell you where I was. I was watching ABC in a in a Whoa. in a theatre somewhere. Martin Fry and all. I just remember watching the game in a pub before going to watch the, the gig. So I, I missed that game to go and watch Martin Fry and ABC. Oh, and then and, and then and then. Manchester United shot that poison arrow through us. Yeah. hard. Um, <laughs> there's your top of the pops link from Joel. There you go. Um, the only other thing I was going to mention quickly was that Nicholas Anelka signed for Man United. Uh, sorry, for Arsenal in 1997 on the 22nd of February, and he did quite well after that as well. And, and Brian Little was sacked by Aston Villa on the 24th. That's that was this week in the 90s. Um, so we're going to be doing this hopefully every week, depending on what's happening. If there's a kind of a week where it wasn't that big, we probably won't go into too much discussion. But yes, this is the new series from Alive and Kick In, brought to you by Matthew Christ. It was his idea. So we will take credit or blame, depending how it goes. Um, I took it upon. It's my idea, really. Um, so, Matthew, where can they find you on Twitter when they're going to abuse you if they don't like the idea? Um, yeah, uh, at Matthew J. Christ on Twitter or the website is matthewchrist.co.uk. And uh, yeah, feel free to blame me. It was my, I think it was on the uh, this trip to Glasgow when I suggested this idea. So I was probably under the influence when it, when it came <laughs> well, to you. Well, you sent so, us a picture of your paint the tenant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was that was a production meeting, wasn't it? He was doing yes. some research on our uh, forthcoming show on the old firm of the 90s. Yeah, that's what we sent yes. you from. Yeah, of course. And Joe. Talking to Tolga Pops, and we haven't mentioned your cat yet, but you can on Twitter. Where can, can people you find hear him? You? He's been meowing. I've sort of been going up and shushing. Oh, I haven't actually. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Is he going to speak? Here we go. <laughs> you, got, you got a little one. There. You got a little one. Uh, yeah. Um, everything is Joel Baby Herc. J O E L B A B Y H E R C, and that's Facebook. And sorry, not Facebook. That's Twitter and Instagram. But Instagram, I don't do much, and all I do on Twitter is rant. That's what it's there for. It's the it's the you know rant of choice. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Well, thanks, guys. Um, we'll be back next week with more of that. Um, a couple of forthcoming episodes, just about getting planned in the can. Some proper full episodes. So keep your eye on Twitter. I've been Ash Rose at Ash Rose UK. This is Alive and Kicking. And until next time, keep it nineties. Alive.